Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Martin McDonough. You're listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You pay off for protection just like everyone else. As far as I know and what I don't know in this town ain't worth knowing. The cops haven't closed any of your dives and the DA hasn't touched any of your rackets. You haven't bought any license to kill bookies and today I ain't selling any. So take your flunky and dangle. Now that right there is what I call giving the hi-hat. Well, maybe you need a little lesson in ethics. Albert Finney there in the Coen Brothers' Miller's Crossing from 1990. We're currently in the midst of Film Spotting Madness, our best of the 90s March Madness-style tournament. And when the Coen's third feature was sent packing after the first round. Can't believe it. We thought it deserved another look. We'll have that sacred cow conversation plus round two Film Spotting Madness results and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Josh, the real March Madness is in full swing. It's just begun. We're already at the Sweet 16. Only 16 left. All the films we've cast aside yes. already to be burnt in the incinerator. Gone forever, except whatever film is left standing. We started with 64 of the best films in the 90s. By the end of this show, we will be down to 16. We started with four films from the Coen brothers, the most of any filmmaker in the the tournament, and then we've got three from Quentin Tarantino, three from Spielberg, and a pair each from David Fincher and Paul Thomas Anderson. One of those directors, Josh, is out of the tourney entirely. I think I know who that is. Okay. And I think I'm probably okay with that. It was looking like the rest of those directors would suffer at least one loss, but we have a matchup featuring two of those filmmakers that has been too close to call all weekend, so we're going to call it here live on the show. That's right. Reservoir Dogs. Versus seven. So Tarantino versus Fincher. This seemed to be, we don't want to get into it now, but it seemed to be a slam dunk. Of course it was going to be Reservoir Dogs. I would have assumed so. But not so fast. Neck and neck, back and forth, over thousands of votes. It's been very exciting behind the scenes with me and my fellow selection committee member, Sam Van Hallgren. You've missed out on all the excitement. You know what we need to do? We need to get like a, a tracker, a live tracker, and put it on the website. So every time a vote is registered, I like this. all of us can see yeah. what's going so on. So Sam and I can be even more distracted yes, from the exactly. things that should really well, matter. So we can distract all the listeners as well. Fair Productivity enough. will just drop during Film Spotting Madness. Why not? Film Spotting Madness, round two results. Those are coming up, and then we will get to those sweet 16 matchups later in the show. But first, before Miller's Crossing gets incinerated forever at the conclusion of Film Spotting Madness, remember, Adam, those are the rules. Look at what you monsters have done. We're going to give the Coen brothers' third film, The Sacred Cow Treatment. I'm talking about Frank. I'm talking about character. I'm talking about... Hell, Leo, I ain't embarrassed to use the word. I'm talking about ethics. You know I'm a sporting man. I like to lay the occasional bet, <laughs> but I ain't that sporting. 
When I fix a fight, say I uh, pay a three-to-one favor to throw a goddamn fight, I figure I got the right to expect that fight to go off at three-to-one. But every time I lay in bed with a son of a bitch burning bomb bomb, before I know it, the odds is even up. Or worse, I'm betting on the short money. The sheeny knows I like short things. He's selling the information, I fixed the fight. Out of town money comes pouring in. The odds go straight to hell. I don't know who's selling to it. Maybe the Los Angeles combine. I don't know. The point is, Bernie ain't satisfied with the honest dollar he can make off the Vic. He ain't satisfied with the business I do on his book. He is selling tips on how I bet. And that means part of the payoff that should be riding on my hip is riding on someone else's. So, back we go to these questions. Friendship. Character. Ethics. It was the clinking ice that got me, Adam. The year was 1990, and I was a budding high school cinephile just beginning to take movies seriously. And an aspiring whiskey drinker? (laughs) Not yet. I'd get there eventually. Debbie and I were on a big date downtown to see a movie that was just too artsy to be playing in the suburbs. The Coen Brothers' Prohibition-era gangster drama, Miller's Crossing, in which Gabriel Byrne stars as Tom Reagan, right-hand man to older crime boss Leo, played by Albert Finney. The movie opens with the two of them in Leo's office, listening to the complaints of a lower-ranked racketeer played by John Polito. Specifically, the movie opens with a close-up of Tom dropping ice into a glass, then tipping some of that whiskey. Something about the way the ice is shot, the way the camera slowly moves away from the glass, the way the sound design reminds us of that glass throughout the rest of the scene. I mean, Tom says everything he needs to by the way he clinks those cubes, swirls them, or keeps them silent. I snapped to attention and realized what it was like to watch a movie in which the filmmakers were in masterful control of every element so that image, movement, sound came together exactly the way they intended and for a particular effect. In short, Miller's Crossing was the first time I can remember realizing, oh yeah, this is a real movie. We decided to revisit Miller's Crossing, which met an early demise in our Film Spotting Madness tournament of 1990s films, for a Sacred Cow review, Adam, and guess what? Oh, yeah, this is still a real movie. Yeah, everyone really should just stop listening right now and rewatch Miller's Crossing. That's a good idea. I want to talk about so much. The performances, the Carter Burwell score, the hats. I do have a grand unified hat theory. Can't wait. But first, I want to hear if there was a scene on this revisit that enthralled you like the movie's opening enthralled me. Or are you going to give me the high hat and claim that on this revisit, Miller's Crossing struck you as a lesser Coen Brothers movie? It sounds like you're not. No. I'm not going to be doing that. In fact, it has moved up my Cone Brothers ranking list. I love it. A good three oh, spots at whoa. least. It could go higher over on Letterboxd. I'm so I'll link happy. to that. Yeah, if anyone cares in our show notes at filmspotting.net. And maybe we'll get into that list a little bit more here in a moment. First, though, I do want to point out, Josh, that that setup was wonderful. Really nice job with the intro. But really, you missed a great opportunity there. All you had to say was, Adam, what's the rumpus? <laughs> they like, sure that. You they that. like that phrase, don't and, they? <laughs> As our regular film spotting listeners know, the people who subscribe to the podcast and have been following along with our Vincent Minnelli marathon, this is that bit of serendipity, that bit of coincidence spotting we sometimes get crossover between films that have no other similarity to each other whatsoever. There's a rumpus reference in The Bad and the Beautiful. I missed that. No, there is. It's right there. I'll have to look up what the exact line is. But having just seen Miller's Crossing, it definitely stuck with me. You were a more sophisticated film connoisseur well you are now you were then well i had a good what 
10 months on you? Yeah, Something maybe like you that? Did. It must maybe have been the did. 10 months. But it took me longer to fully appreciate Miller's Crossing. In fact, it took me this viewing of Miller's Crossing to really love this film as much as you love it. And I do want to go back a little bit before I answer your direct question there. I've said before, I think on the show recently that this was my first Coen Brothers film. And that's not actually true because I saw Raising Arizona 50 times as a kid in the 80s and loved the movie, but I had no awareness of it as a, quote, Coen Brothers film, even in 1991 or maybe 92, Josh, by the time I saw this. I think you were a little bit ahead of me in becoming a cinephile. It was around the time of my senior year, the summer before, and watching this movie on VHS. I definitely did not see Miller's Crossing in the theater in Iowa. Who knows if it even came to a theater in Iowa at that time, honestly. But I was just starting to get into film. And this movie, yes, was being presented to me as a film of note by directors of note, but I had no precedent for it whatsoever. I had no sense of their style, their preoccupations, all the things that we have come to, most of us love and appreciate about the Coen brothers, had no sense of it then, of course. And I do remember being struck by some of the same sequences I was this time. I'll go to the two big stylistic set pieces, of course. Danny Boy, the failed hit on Leo. Just a beautiful dialogue-free dance. A tracking shot from the open window. You don't see the perpetrator come in, just the sound. The curtain's blowing. You know someone's in the room. You don't see the bodyguard killed. You just hear it. Then you see his body and the killer's legs walking away to the door. He opens it. Another killer with guns comes in. And then the smoke we see, but they don't, as they go up the stairs, cross-cutting with Finney in bed, just enjoying the music, smoking a cigar. His puff of smoke down to the smoke he smells coming through the floorboards and the killers walking and we only see their legs up the stairs, perhaps an homage to The Godfather. I can't help but think about that first assassination attempt on Vito Corleone in The Godfather where we just see their legs as they run past that fruit stand and shoot Vito. Finney escaping out the window, shooting the one killer through the window with a thousand bullets, just the spray, perhaps there an homage to the spasm of death at the end of Bonnie and Clyde, a reference I would not have been able to make back when I saw this the first time. And then the gunfight with a car down the street. There are cinematic pyrotechnics and actual pyrotechnics in this sequence. Why wouldn't a budding teenage cinephile be blown away? And this middle-aged cinephile was just as impressed. Of course, the other one you have to point to with this movie, look into your heart. Just as good the second time as it was the first time, Bernie Birnbaum, played by the great John Turturro, a Coen Brothers regular, being taken out to the title Miller's Crossing, where he's going to be killed by Gabriel Byrne's Tom Reagan. And the tension of that, the precision of the movement cutting between Tom, his quiet terror as he moves still, slowly, with Bernie's desperate terror, both men anticipating that that scene is only going to end one way, with both of them being dead. And we as viewers see no way out for either guy. It's intense. It's wonderful. Tommy, you can't do this. You don't bump guys. You're not like those animals back there. It's not right, Tom. They can't make us do this. It's the wrong situation. They can't make us different people than we are. We're not muscle, Tom. I, I, I never killed anybody. I used a little information for a chisel, that's all. It's my nature, Tom. I, 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 can't, I can't help it. Somebody hits me an angle, I play it. I don't, I don't deserve to die for that. Do you think I do? I will say, even though I wasn't as sophisticated as you then, that opening scene was another one that really caught my attention. And... 
frankly stunned me. And I think it's just partly the rhythm of the dialogue, the words, the the phrasing that we have come to associate with the Coen brothers, even just ending on that line Leo has. Finney says, take your flunky and dangle. And just listening to a character not just ask for something, but frame it by expressing his worldview, which is what John Polito does. We've seen that in a lot of Coen Polito Brothers movies. Is so good. Polito's so oh good. Just died in September 2016. And he's, he's the unsung hero. He's the MVP of this movie. And that's it, Josh, is what really stunned me, I think, as a newcomer to the Coen Brothers and really to cinema as a whole was the performance. John Polito's performance, that character That sweaty, expressive, gesturing Johnny Casper is exactly the type of mannered, idiosyncratic character that we've seen now so many times in other Coen Brothers movies, including sometimes by John Polito himself. I know for sure he appears in Barton Fink. That felt so new and fresh to me at the time. And the way the Coen Brothers keep the camera focused on him for almost two minutes before anyone else in the scene speaks. And here's another potential homage to The Godfather. It's like the opening scene of that film where we have the character sitting across from Vito. It's a close-up on him. And he says, I believe in America. He expresses his worldview even as he's asking for a favor from someone who is capable of granting it. And in The Godfather, it starts on that close-up and pulls back to a wider shot. Here, it's the opposite. It actually starts wider on Polito and moves in. It gets closer as the scene goes on. But how animated he is, contrasted with the stillness and the quiet of everyone else in that scene. Other than clinking the glass, Tom pretty much doesn't move except for the moment when he walks back across the room to the, yeah, yep. from the back over to Leo's side. And we'll get to that a bit later as well. By the end of this five-minute-plus scene... Polito is bent over, yelling at Leo, and he's so worked up that it seems like he's about to have a heart attack for real right there in front of us on screen. Again, it just felt so new and exciting. It's exciting now. And this time I did notice even other aspects of the scene that excited me even more. But I've talked enough and I want to know what experience you had with that opening scene and with the film as a whole the second time around. You think that I'm some guinea fresh off the boat and you can kick me. But I'm too big for that now. I'm sick of taking a strap from you, Leo. I'm sick of marching into this goddamn office to kiss your Irish ass. And I'm sick of the high hat. The opening scene is the one that I always think of just because that memory is so indelible of experiencing it. Watching it again, though, it did strike me what Byrne is doing yes. with the ice and how the Coens are, of course, framing him. And you talked about it. I think the reason we see Polito originally in a wider shot is so that we also notice that shadow in that's the back it. and we connect it with the bar that we see. And we think, oh, that's the guy who was making the drink. We are always, no matter how gripping Polito is and what he's saying, we are always aware of Tom Reagan in that scene. Mm-hmm. And that is the point because he will turn out to be the main character and it's all about him. And I watched it again just last night and what he's essentially doing is affirming what Johnny Casper is saying. So without by, – by using that ice, it's like a punctuation mark to his complaint. So he's letting Leo know that this guy's got a point. Mm-hmm. He's got a beef. You should listen to him. And then we get Leo's response. We get the close-up shot of Tom's look of surprise because he thought everyone was on the same page. Uh And that's the first domino that falls in an incredibly intricately plotted film noir narrative that 
just on its own is a pleasure to try to follow and put together, but also, you know, is is rooted in this moral conundrum that's really at the heart of this film. It's not even a moral conundrum that's, for me, Miller's Crossing is asking, should we bother with moral conundrums? <laughs> that's kind of the foundational question. And then it lets us watch its characters squirm and wrestle with that themselves. I think that's why Johnny Casper is going to have a heart attack because of <laughs> he doesn't get the quote unquote morality he expects. And of course, Tom Regan wrestles with that as well. So let me just hit a couple of the other moments, though, that did jump out at me as much as that opening. You mentioned the dialogue free elements. How about that silent movie moment of revealing Rug Daniels dead in the alley? Mm-hmm. Okay. No one says a thing. Instead, we get a shot of the dog shot of the boy. We don't know what they're looking at. And then comes the money shot of Rug Daniels with his wig askew. Right. And we realize, oh, this is the guy they were just talking about. Mm-hmm. And all of that information is plotted, but also in something that could be pulled from almost a Charlie Chaplin short, like a really grim right. Charlie Chaplin well, short. There's a great joke in there too, right? That it comes up multiple times throughout the film that Tom Reagan, the brains, who's always piecing everything together based on evidence, is sure that he knows certain things about this whole scenario because of what happened to Rug Daniels and he's trying to figure out what happened to the toupee as if that has significance. We're the only ones who know. We're the only ones who know that a kid just took it and it has no grander cosmic point beyond it, but it's stymieing Tom throughout the entire film. And there's some of that dark humor that they're so well known for. I mentioned in our The Bad and the Beautiful review earlier this week as part of our Manelli Marathon, you talked about a dissolve you noticed in that film. How about, this is that great dissolve of all time, one of the greats at least, from Tom alone in the woods at Miller's Crossing, standing still in his overcoat, his hands are down, the gun is pointing down, and we just dissolve to the two henchmen who brought him there, leaning against the car, back on the road, exact same spot. Mm -hmm. And Man, that whole setting, it only appears twice in the film, although we kind of get it when Tom recounts the opening his dream credits and the dream. And the credits, so maybe two significant scenes. But that music, the Carter Burwell score, and those pines and, and looking up yeah. from the ground to the sky as we slowly track through them, there that's one of the transcendental moments in cinema for me. And by that I mean um, it's it's incredibly moving in a way I can't quite pinpoint. There's something ennobling about it, even though it's marking a march of death, essentially. And um, having those two things held together in the same moment with nothing but music and camera movement is, uh, it's miraculous. Yeah, it is. There's something poetic, obviously, about the way it's constructed, but something poetic just in that gesture of looking up towards the sky, trying to somehow make sense of this, which is really the point of this whole film. And I do want to go back just briefly to the opening scene, though, Josh, because what really stood out for me this time, beyond all the great points you made, is the movement. Exactly how Tom is moving from the beginning of the scene to the very end of the scene, even after John Polito has exited. And I'll confess, sometimes I'm a bad movie watcher. This was the first time I'd seen this movie since that time in 91 or 92. And even after finishing it, And loving the opening scene, if you had asked me again, how does Miller's Crossing open? I would have said the first shot is John Polito's face. I didn't remember the glass clinking. I didn't remember the drink. I just put so much weight. It was so vivid in my mind, Polito's face, that I was sure that's how it started. I was also sure that's how it started because I thought it was this homage to The Godfather. They were riffing on that idea of opening with that favor being asked for. And I wanted to see just how closely they were 
paying tribute to it if in fact they were. I also just wanted to watch the movie again because it was so much damn fun the second time here, the first time on this revisit that I started the film again. And I was immediately struck by the brilliance of how they use the space. And it's through the entire film. There are seven examples I could point to of characters being at a distance or at a very close proximity to other characters in the scene that other filmmakers just don't frame people in that way. And it doesn't add to the psychology and it doesn't add to the humor the way the Coen brothers do it. But it starts right in that opening scene because it opens on that drink, as you've noted, the ice, the whiskey, the sound first, appropriate, as you said, because there are so many instances of that throughout this film. And it's appropriate for its influences, this movie's influences on screen and in fiction, thinking about Dashiell Hammond, how much of his influence you see in yes. their work. The drink, and we know this from any hard-boiled film we've seen or read the material, that's just going to be a recurring motif. They're going to walk into any scene and pour a drink. So, okay, you don't really think too much of it. But then when it does cut to Casper for the first time, you don't really know in the background who's holding that drink. It looks like it should be whoever that is. He's not in focus, but he's holding something, and he seems to be by the bar. Okay, we're going to come to learn that it's Tom. He's on Polito's side of the table. He's not on Leo's side. You do see one guy, a sort of henchman, you assume, right behind Polito, a bodyguard of some kind. But what side is this guy, the mysterious guy in the back on? It's not clear yet. A minute into the scene, still completely out of focus the whole time, Tom, this mystery man, starts walking towards the camera along the side of the frame. Casper actually notices him, and the Coen brothers show in close-up him noting, yeah. him going by. Gives it's significant. Yeah, he gives him a glance. Once that shadow crosses him, once Leo speaks, breaking up Polito's dialogue, that's when we're finally introduced to Tom, and he's clearly entrenched on that side of the table, on that side of this potential dispute. As the movie then cuts back and forth a little bit, it's a two-shot. For three or four shots in a row, it's always pairing Leo and Tom together in this frame. And when we do see that Tom disagrees with him, he thinks his boss is making the wrong play, he tells him, and where does he do it? As soon as Polito finally exits along with the Dane, Tom goes and sits not even just right across from him at his desk. He goes and sits halfway across the room on a couch. He's halfway between where the scene began over on that side of the room, where he was for most of the scene, right behind Leo. Visually, he's backing him that entire time. Now, he's not. Now, he's right in the middle of it all, just as he's going to be for the rest of the movie. He's going to be stuck playing both sides. You're never sure completely where his loyalty lies. You're never sure what his angle is. You're never sure what his motivation is. And they emphasize that really subtly, just with where he's positioned in the frame, right in that opening scene. Yeah, and how he's trying to balance that deference to Leo Mm -hmm. with what he believes to be right and his own principles and Casper's legitimate argument. Okay, let's keep talking about space a little bit more because it's also going to give me a chance to bring up Marcia Gay Harden as Verna, who is maybe the domino before the domino I mentioned yeah. that sets this in motion, dating Leo essentially to protect her brother, John Turturro, who you mentioned, uh, who's ripping people off, ripping Johnny Casper off. Yet she's with Leo so that Leo will offer protection, even though Bernie's in the wrong. She is amazing in this movie. She's really good. Plain, An unlikely femme fatale, too. Exactly. I don't think of Marcia yeah, Gay Harden that way. Ne- you would stunned. never expect that. But man, does she chomp into this role and make it much more than a caricature of a type that could easily just be funny. And I think it all comes together in a scene that does also use space well. It's at the club where Tom, they've had a spat. 
she and Tom, for those who haven't seen it, are also involved with each other. And they've had a spat. And so he comes charging into the women's mm-hmm. restroom area. And what does he say to her? Something about, say he claims his job is to intimidate helpless women, or I've been intimidating helpless women. And she says, find one and intimidate her. Okay, great line. Beautiful delivery. Things get violent. She hits him. He throws a glass at her, breaks a mirror. She just looks at him and they hold her, give her that moment. I suppose you think you raised hell. And then the spacing comes where she saunters out and the camera. Leave him. Leave him. Leave him. Sticks with her. Yeah. Except for that shot back to him. Uh huh. But at this point, because we've been following with her, it's a reverse tracking shot, and he's getting smaller and smaller being diminished. in the frame, being diminished. That is just a beautiful combination of performance and, as you said, spacing that is also one of the highlights of the film, I think. Yeah, I will say about Marsha Gay Harden that she plays enough notes here that I think we as viewers initially think we know everything we need to know about her based on the description of her that we get based on everything Tom says about her. And that really is Tom's key to this whole movie. We'll talk more about it's how he's able to discern the true nature of people, but he may be right about Marsha Gay Harden's Verna, but she plays it complexly enough that we're not quite sure he's right. We yeah, think there think might be fair. more to her. I think there, than, there's way more. He's to her. giving her credit. for. And that's a good point too. We mostly hear her describe. Yes. So we almost get more scenes, as many scenes, let's say, of yes. her being characterized by others than she gets herself. Yeah. And yet, I think Marsha Gay Harden holds her own and manages to turn a lot of these men around within the plot and for her own needs, yeah. uh, despite not getting all that time. So Miller's Crossing was number one on your Coen Brothers films ranking. I'm guessing it stayed there after yeah. this rewatch. I mean, and, and this is, you know, this is a in a sense, a pointless conversation because these are, well, it's pointless because it's pointless, but also because with the Coen brothers, we're talking very small degrees here. Yes. I'm only going to say I did watch True Grit within the last week, which so that's is another one I need my to number four Coen brothers film. Okay. So there's another one that would have been in the running. Hail Caesar is fairly fresh in my mind. It was my top film of that year. I have it at number three. And then I have No Country at number two, which is the one I probably should revisit to really clamp down this list. Mm-hmm. But yeah. After this revisit, I'm definitely keeping it there at number one. So it is all about degrees, and this is totally arbitrary anyway, but our Coen Brothers top 10 really doesn't look very similar at all, other than us both having no country pretty high. You have it at number two. I have it at number one. I have that top tier, which for me is no country, Fargo, then inside Lewin Davis, and then barely a drop off at all. Right. That's how it goes with that. To tier two, Raising Arizona, I put it that high. I exalt Raising Arizona because I think it just might be if not the funniest film of all time. It's in my top five comedies ever made, so it deserves to be there at number four. Then I had Barton Fink, Lebowski, A Serious Man, Blood Simple, then Miller's Crossing. That's how far down I had it, and I'll get to the reasons why in a moment, but I had it then just ahead of True Grit at number 10. Now, because of how much I love Miller's Crossing, watching it again, I've bumped it up to number six, and I could make a case for having it ahead of Raising Arizona and Barton Fink. It, it's, it's just so hard because they're all so great. But Josh, for me, it was number nine because of how far removed I was from seeing it originally. It wasn't fresh in my mind at all. But also because if I'm being totally honest, I remember walking away from it really, really confused. Mm, okay. As wowed as I was by the filmmaking, I know I was lost watching the film. And what I realized watching it again is that what changed here in the... 27 years is that 
true since just, I've seen this movie? On. Let's just move on. How is that possible? I, no, don't, Most of our listeners aren't even don't that stop old. stop to think about <laughs> That's it. That's how long it's been since I've seen Miller's Crossing. What's changed isn't just that I got older. That's for sure. That I got smarter, maybe, maybe just a little, or that I've read more detective fiction or watched more detective movies, though that is true as well. I realize that the Coen brothers have actually been responsible for teaching me how to watch movies. Not only watch movies in general, but watch their movies. They've taught me a certain worldview that I can now understand. The existential dilemmas that confound their characters consistently from movie to movie also just so happen to be those dilemmas that confound most of us in everyday life. And we could discuss the reasons why, if there are reasons why Tom ultimately does what he does, why he is playing all of these angles and all these people against each other and where he ends up. Is it because it was always driven by loyalty to Leo or is the reason reason itself in some way, Josh? And I wonder if this is getting at even what you were kind of hinting at in terms of the larger questions this movie is posing, the very thing that so many Cone characters to me seek and try to live by, whether it's Ed Crane and the man who wasn't there, which I know you love more than me, I appreciate it, you really love it, to Larry Gopnik in A Serious Man, Sheriff Ed Tom Bell in No Country for Old Men, and even Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men, is trying to establish order or reestablish a perceived order that was lost that exists now in this chaotic world. And I can't say that that exploration began with Miller's Crossing because there are elements of it, undeniably, in Raising Arizona and in Blood Simple. But I do think it's explored most emphatically and brilliantly to that point here in Miller's Crossing. Yeah, so the confusion element, you know, this movie does make sense if you follow all the threads. But as we've learned from the original film noirs, that doesn't really matter. Right. You know, like it, it's it, the plot isn't the point. It's more the ideas that the movie is interested in and the mood that it sets. So it's to its credit that Miller's Crossing, which is very hard to follow, how this all comes together, mm-hmm. does come together. It does. Uh, it absolutely Completely. does. So they've done their work. Now that I way. see that. <laughs> but right. But on a first watch, when you're already awash in all of the visual information and technique, it can be very difficult to put those pieces together. So completely understandable. But it does hold up. Now, as to these larger questions you're talking about, this brings us to my hat theory. And what I think, and I'm just talking about Tom here. Is so this your next Tom, book, by the way? Are you sure you want to get into it here? <laughs> no, it's not going to go on that long. Don't worry. Tom's hat, it represents the ethics, the principles, the standard that he's going to hold on to no matter what the cost. Now, I don't mean that he's an ethical character. No. In fact, there's no way that he is. Exactly. But he has, in his mind, he has a standard that he holds to, and that's represented by his hat. It's it's the last grasp is that physical manifestation. So if he loses his grip on it, this Mm -hmm. goes to what you were saying. Yep. It's anarchy. Yes. That's the, that's the word that I'm John Polito uses. Okay. So here's some evidence of Tom's ethics. Again, ethics in quotes. He won't take Leo's offer to square his gambling debts. Okay. That would be the wrong thing to do. Right. He wants to He'll pay settle it himself. himself. He tells Leo protecting Bernie is a bad play, partly because Bernie doesn't deserve the protection. Casper hasn't broken the rules. Right. Bernie has. Reason. Yes. There's a reason there. The bartender at one point says to Tom, I admire a man of principle. Okay. Now, again, whatever that might mean. I love the line, the quick one, but it plays into this where Tom, he comes awake. I think this is after he's been beat up by, I forget who he's been beat up by at this point, but he just says immediately, where's me hat? 
That's the first thing that mm-hmm. comes to mind because, again, he just has to have a grasp on that. Notice the scene after he confesses to Leo about him and Verna, and Leo gives him, in his words, the kiss off. What does he do at the very end? Throws him his hat. He's earned it by telling the truth. And the dream, okay? Mm, this of course. balances that hard line of giving us too much information, but I think has enough poeticism to work. He talks about this dream where his hat blew off, goes rolling down Mm -hmm. this trail. And Verna says, well, what did it change into? She's heard this dream before. He says, nothing, just stayed a hat. And he didn't chase it. He says, nothing more foolish than a man chasing his hat. So here's this idea, the silliness of morality. Yeah, you have some integrity or principle. In this world. You hang on to it all the time. And but, but what's the point of that in this world? This world of death and violence and angle playing mm-hmm. and cheating and double crossing. So I really do think the movie is uh, an open question, ultimately, over whether ethics are even worth it. Mm -hmm. I think you can make an argument that it comes down essentially that we're not going to say what ethics those are, but yeah, it's good to have those. Um, I think that's something in the Carter Burwell score that's capturing that sensibility. But ultimately it's asking us that question. Why bother with ethics in a world like this? And, um, you know, and Bernie then is your sugar. He's your agent of chaos. Yeah, he really is here. And, so that's Tom's hat. I don't know how this would play no, for I'm... everybody else's hats. Like you'd have to sit down and, and watch how they interact. But it's such a point of yes. emphasis by the Coens. That... Emphasis is the right word. And yeah. the other thing with the Coens is they could just be screwing with us. They absolutely could <laughs> at all times. And I'm with you. I'm with you completely. I'm buying all of it because we see Tom and we see the film overall very similarly. I think that hat has to be the manifestation of that principle, those ethics, whatever you want to call it. I come back to the word that comes up in the movie, reason. And in fact, one point where he's arguing with Leo, he says, no, you do things for a reason. Yeah, you have to right. at least yeah. have something motivating that. And so then what's fascinating about Tom is we as viewers never know what his reason is. So we are just as he is always playing detective. And that's what he is. He's he's not because he's really just the brains. He's not the brawn behind Leo, but he is a confidant. He's not someone who's actually out there solving cases, but just like detectives in other Coen Brothers films and in Dashiell Hammett stories, he is constantly just piecing together clues. And those guys are always kind of in the middle, right? They're, they're they not They're not in, at the bottom of the pond in the scum. They're not out of the water right. with the law. They're swimming in the murk. That's it. Right? They're, they're so is dark knights of sorts. That's really what they are. They are exactly in the middle. So then we... Because we don't know what's driving him. We don't know what his end game is. So we're detectives, too, as viewers, just as he's watching every other character, paying attention to everything they say and do, how they say it, what they have with them, the size and shape of things. He's drawing information from literally everything he can discern. And we as viewers then are picking that up from him as well. We're trying to decide what all those hat movements mean, why he keeps talking about the hat and everything else he does. What is his plan? Does he even know what his plan is? These are questions that hang over the whole film in, I think, a really compelling way. That's the suspense for us as viewers. We know everybody else's motivation. I think it's introduced and pretty clear. We could describe in about 30 seconds what everybody else in this film wants. What does Tom want? Well, I think he does get back to establishing or reestablishing some kind of order. But that's that's a very ambiguous kind of ethereal thing and really isn't even completely clear until the end of the movie. But I do think that the real difference between him and the other characters, besides the fact that he's smarter, alluded to all the time, and we see that in action, but it's his understanding of human nature. 
once he's able to discern who each character is, then he's got you. He can almost predict how you are going to act. That's the one thing amidst all this chaos is he's able to figure out what's driving you. And I think about the scene, there are many examples of this, but when Bernie comes to his house and uh, he says, hello, Tom, what's the rumpus? How'd you know it was me? And he says, you're the only one I know who'd knock and then break in. Your other friends wouldn't break in. He says, my other friends want to kill me so they wouldn't have knocked. But he knows who Bernie is fundamentally. Yeah. He knows who he is so he can figure out who that guy is in the room based on putting together a few clues. When he tells Leo it's a bad idea to marry Verna and says it's not worth going to war over, he says she's a grifter. She's just like her brother. Case after case throughout the film, he can almost perfectly predict what others will do because it's in their nature. They can't help themselves from being exactly who they are. Yeah, so I, I think that's absolutely right. But I want to ask you, do you think he believes that about Verna? Because I think if there's a degree of bittersweetness to their relationship and why it does work as well as it does is I trust there's something genuine there between them. And the reason is this is the only relationship the two of them are involved in where there's no practical benefit, mm -hmm. right? There, there's risk involved. So there's something genuine attracting them to each other that is not a play. There's not an angle. Okay. Now, yeah. Eventually there comes to be one, especially for Verna, I think. But at least when we first meet them, the impression is they're together because they want to be. They just want to be. No one else in this film has that bottom line. As antagonistic as the relationship is at times, there is that connection. I agree with you. And in fact, I was so buying that relationship that watching it this second time, I thought for sure we were going to come to realize that what his true end game was, the one thing that he was always hanging on to wasn't his love for Leo, but in fact, his love for Verna. For her. That was what was influencing every decision he's making. At the end of the film, and we won't say too much here for people who haven't seen it, but at the end of the film, I don't think the Coen brothers validate that at all. I don't no, think that Tom's, I would agree. Tom's behavior and the actions he take do not in any way validate that reading of the film. And so, you know why? She violates well, his principles. Yeah. In her ensuing actions, as things start to fall apart, again, whatever you that. want to identify those principles as, because <laughs> he's a shifty guy too, yeah. that standard she doesn't meet. Yeah. And so she's out. And his principles surprise us and confound us throughout the film. Because confound is a good we word. Think, we think... Well, we he, want him to be the good guy. We want him to be the good guy. And the Coen brothers know that. And so we are accepting of the idea that he's not a killer. Well, he isn't a killer, really. He clearly has a distaste for it. He's not particularly good at it. There's that great clumsy scene where he tries to mimic without knowing he's mimicking it, but tries to mimic the grace of Leo in a scene yeah. where he tries to beat a killer down the stairs right. and, <laughs> and take them by surprise. It doesn't happen that way for him. But there is a moment where we see that to act on his principles, if he is forced to act on his principles, he's willing to yes. make that decision. That, the same way someone like Anton Chigurh does on a much grander yeah. level. And, and that more really stuck out. Level. Yeah, that really stuck out to me this time when he does take Bernie to Miller's Crossing. And what I forget, maybe it's form of denial as well, is that as far as he knew, he was going to shoot him. Right. I mean, if he didn't know that he was going to be let alone to walk Bernie into the woods where the two henchmen couldn't see them. I don't know that that was his choice. Well, that was his the, game. That's one of the great plan. questions here. Right. It's it's like he was given these cars to deal with and he lets Bernie go. So we can kind of now feel he's maybe a good guy. But if those two henchmen had been right next to him, he probably would have shot him. Yeah, he might have. 
it's one of those great questions, one of those great mysteries, I think, surrounding this great film. Miller's Crossing is available to rent or buy on DVD and stream on most platforms. If you have seen the movie and agree or disagree with our thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Time to find out who survived round two of Film Spotting Madness and who's going to get taken out to Miller's Crossing. Look in your heart, Josh. <laughs> Come on, give it, give it a Look little in your more. Heart. There you go. Now I'll let you go. Stay with us. city normal but you still see your stalker everywhere rationally i know this is my imagination but i'm alone in a strange city and i never feel safe claire foy the queen herself in the trailer for steven soderbergh's new thriller shot i suppose we can say sean baker style on iphones but i also believe in secret unlike tangerine really okay that this was is that all... was what i had heard early on about this film all i know about unsane is it's soderbergh and Claire Foy is in it. Yeah. I didn't even listen to that trailer, Adam. So I'm going in excitedly blind for yeah, this. Me too. And it is opening next weekend in Chicago and other cities. And we plan to review it next week on the show. Can't wait to see the latest experiment from Soderbergh. And we will have more film spotting madness. The Elite Eight will be revealed on that episode. Also next week, the fourth film in our sixth film, Vincent Minnelli Marathon, 1953's The Bandwagon, Fred Astaire, and Sid Cherise star. We hope you're following along. We have been getting a lot of great feedback. You can hear those bonus episodes if you are already subscribed to the Film Spotting podcast, and you'll find our reviews for the first three films of the marathon in your feed. This week it was 1952's The Bad and the Beautiful with Kirk Douglas and Lana Turner, and we also talked about Cabot in the Sky and his follow-up Meet Me in St. Louis. Those marathon episodes post to our podcast feed every Wednesday. You can subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app, or you can listen at filmspotting.net. Josh, the address where you can find those marathons and those shows is at filmspotting.net slash marathons. Arminelli Marathon is presented by Mubi. An algorithm has no business choosing your films. Mubi is a curated online cinema streaming exceptional films from around the globe. Each day they introduce a new gem and then you have one month to watch it. Whether it's a timeless classic, a festival darling, or an acclaimed masterpiece, each film is hand-selected by experts. Plus you can delve deeper into the films with exclusive interviews, video essays, and critical reviews on Mubi's notebook. One of the highlights this week, new to Mubi from 2006, 
Fireworks Wednesday. And Josh, I'm sure you remember, many of our listeners remember, it is a film from Oscar winner Asghar Farhadi, the director of A Separation and The Salesman. His 06 film set against the backdrop of the Persian New Year, another of his engrossing explorations of marriage, recommended by both of us way back on episode 409 of this show. It was part of our contemporary Iranian cinema marathon and your best actor, came from it. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash film spotting. One more plug for Isle of Dogs, the new movie from Wes Anderson. It opens Wednesday, March 28th here in Chicago and other cities. There is going to be an advanced screening here in Chicago on Monday, March 26th, and we have tickets to give away for that. If they're not all claimed already, still have the link live, filmspotting.net slash events. We have gotten a lot of great feedback throughout this film spotting madness tourney so far some you're going to hear in the comments or you've been hearing in the comments in response directly to the polls other feedback comes to us in the mailbag and i thought this one from a longtime listener andre cadeau in charlottesville virginia was maybe a great transition into our talk of madness the last month has been very difficult first world problems ahead First, I had to start the Vincent Minnelli Marathon. Then, for madness, I had to squeeze in eight 90s movies. Thank goodness Virgin Suicides was pushed into the next decade. Let me second the motion to release the list of movies from the 2000s weeks before the next film spotting madness. So many films, so little time. So we did bring that up, and that is an ironclad plan. That is a stone-cold lock that next year... Sometime right around January 1st, leading up into this March Madness, we will go ahead and post the complete list of films. Maybe not the seating, obviously, yet, or the bracket itself, but the list of titles at filmspotting.net slash madness. So this is almost a full year away, but that doesn't mean Sam and I haven't already basically got the list ready to go, which I shouldn't have said out loud because now people are going to say, Come on, Adam, share it with me. It'll change. But we've got, it will change. It will change. You don't want the list yet, people. We've got about 59 slots filled. And we feel really good about it. it. We feel really good about this list. So, yes, you can already start looking forward to Film Spotting Madness next year, where we share the best films of, say it, Josh, say the best films of the naughties. No. I, I go with the 2000s. the 2000s. I don't even go so far as aughts. I know. So there's no way I'm saying naughties. Well, we'll see if you can come around over the next seven to eight months. Will you be checking out today, Mr. Connors? I'd say the chance of departure is 80%. 7580. Oh, I know this one hurts, Josh. What are Groundhog Day's chances of departure from film spotting madness? Not, not even my renewed love for Miller's Crossing wants me to see another Coen Brothers film beat Groundhog Day. Yeah. Yeah. No, Groundhog Day should win over Big Lebowski. We'll get to that matchup and the results in a second. The beloved Harold Ramis film did draw a tough second round matchup in The Dude, and we will get to those results here in a moment. 64 of the best films of the 90s is where we started with Madness. Only one can reign supreme. Last week, we got that 64 down to 32. This week, the Sweet 16 will be revealed. So in theory, anyway... The 16 best films of the 90s, as determined by our listeners, is what you're going to hear. As we have in the past couple of weeks, we'll go through results region by region, with each region containing a top seed. We'll start, as we have been, with our number four overall seed. This one was the only one where there was some debate. We felt really confident about what those first three seeds were. Wasn't sure about the fourth, but Silence of the Lambs felt like a beloved, acclaimed, and rightfully so, film. We did go with that Jonathan Demme movie as our number four overall, and it matched up against James Cameron's Terminator 2 Judgment Day. We split on this. I went silence. You went T2. 
And we have a note from Aaron Teachman in D.C. There it is, the now familiar sense of dread at having to choose which part of yourself to cut off and cast away and which one to keep. T2 and Silence of the Lambs are both in my personal top ten for very similar reasons. They both elevate the pulpy origins of their stories, not by sneering at or downplaying or squirming out of the sensationalist nature of their stories, but by burrowing further in. T2 is nominally about two time-traveling robots fighting over a mewling human, but James Cameron was not at all content with that. The beating heart and the conscience of T2 is the scarred psyche of Sarah Connor as she wrestles with the demons of the past and the weight of the future. T2 is about complicated moral questions and a great action movie. But it did not get my vote this time, because on the other side of this battle is the Silence of the Lambs. Silence is utterly pulpy, but also resolutely focused on exploring complex psychologies and constantly reckoning with how a psyche survives contact with the most brutal things human beings do to one another. On top of all that, The Silence of the Lambs is an extraordinarily beautiful film about very ugly things and a friggin' masterclass in the many emotional uses of the close-up. I'm choosing the silence of the lambs, but the edge is as fine as the filleting knife Lecter surely kept in his kitchen. Well, I don't see the edge being quite that close. I think it's pretty obvious Silence of the Lambs is the best film here, the better film here, for all the reasons Aaron elucidated. He's a very smart listener. In fact, he's so smart, he gave me a word I had to look up. Mewling? Mewling? Mewling. M-E-W-L? You may not know it, but sometimes you do mewling on the show. How dare you? How dare you? Especially of a baby, cry feebly or querulously to whimper. I'm going to whimper with some of these results here in a moment. Actually, I think you're going to be the one whimpering a little yeah, more. Yeah, this did not go my me. way. Yeah, Silence of the Lambs, 67% to T2's 33%. So just not a fair. dominant performance just not by fair. the Demi film. That brings us to PTA's Boogie Nights versus Spike Lee's Malcolm X. We heard from David Hoffman in Queens. Malcolm X is a masterpiece, a mesmerizing epic take on poorly understood pieces of American history and a film that everyone should watch. And Boogie Nights... It's a gleefully trashy piece of sexploitation that has nothing of value to teach anyone. What? So why did I find this, this choice so hard? Wait, wait. He's turning around. Why did I find this choice so hard? To hell with it. And me. And I'll probably hate myself in the morning, but I voted for Boogie Nights. Do you have any coke at this party? <laughs> well, now we know what drove David's vote. How did it come out, Josh? Ah, Boogie Nights, 74% of the vote took the win. And I think that was probably the misperception with Malcolm X is that phrase David used a film everyone should watch. Malcolm X is way more fun than that. Yeah, it really is. It's an amazing film. This is a really tough one for me, but I love Boogie Nights and voted for it. Last week on the show, you may recall, I think it was last week anyway, I mentioned that the lowest vote total in round one, and we suggested, and I'm sure not everyone followed it, but we suggested that if you haven't seen both films in a matchup, you should abstain from voting. Instead of the madness results being determined ultimately by the films you've seen. We tried to impose some principles on this. We did. Exercising chaos and Tom Reagan style. We did. (laughs) I don't think it probably worked. Yeah, it works about as well as it does for him, most of Miller's Crossing. But if you do look at those polls, Josh, I'll give you access if you want to look at the voting. Oh, yes, I I do. Yeah, I know you can't Real-time access. You do see that there are some polls that have way more votes in it than others. Okay. And last time, it was Malcolm X against... Blue. I think it was Kislovsky's Blue. That sounds right. And I threw out that this was the lowest voted in, the lowest turnout. And I thought, well, it's because they haven't seen the Kislovsky movie. A fair assumption. Most people haven't seen that film from the Polish master starring Juliette Binoche. But here we are again with the matchup that had the lowest turnout. I wonder if just age-wise, the majority of our listeners, Malcolm X fits into... 
what's the opposite of a sweet spot? A blind spot, really? Yeah. A dead zone where Could somehow be. it's a movie many people have missed? I think I think that could be, and just want to reiterate, it's not a movie that you should watch because of that blind spot. It's really a movie you want to watch. It's fantastic. Michael Mann's Heat versus Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused, the one that just destroyed me even having to read out loud last time. Chad in Evanston, Illinois says, Adam, film spotting madness has driven you mad. You ought to be paddled by a deranged Ben Affleck for such heresy against Dazed and Confused. I know it's too late for you to take back your vote for Heat. But it'd be a lot cooler if you did. It certainly would. I'm still baffled I'm, at this I'm one. baffled by it, too. It was you, the hardest. Is the, how much regret do you have? Give me a percentage. Uh, how much regret do I have? 91%? Yeah, that's about, <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, that's what I have. <laughs> well, the results were not 91% to 9 A lot of people were bothered by this pairing, too, Josh, because it was very close. In fact, technically an upset in that a lower-seeded movie did beat the higher-seeded, but this is another case where you really can't say it's an upset. I think a lot of us would have predicted how it came out, and it did come out with Linklater on top. 53% of the vote for Dazed and Confused to Heat's 47%. I like seeing that. It, it, it doesn't hurt me because I love Dazed and Confused, but... You probably feel better, actually. You probably way, feel like you're let off the hook no, a little bit. No, that's it. I do feel yeah. let off the hook. Yeah. I did say to Sam, because he was still giving me grief about this in our Slack channel, and I just put it this way, and we all come up with our reasons for voting one way or another. When Dazed and Confused comes on TV, I almost always watch the rest of it. Of course. When Heat comes on, I always watch to the end of the film. Hmm. Every time. That, that seems like arbitrary logic that led mm-hmm. you to the wrong decision. <laughs> Can't argue with that. As we talk about logic and reason and chaos, which madness really is, why not a Cone Brothers matchup? Here we go. The Cone Brothers, the Big Lebowski versus Josh's beloved Groundhog Day. And before we get to those results, a little bit more listener feedback, this time in the form of a voicemail. Hey guys, this is Troy in St. Louis, and I wanted to call in to tell you how much I love the show, and uh, also to tell you what utter monsters you are. Um, this matchup between Lebowski and Groundhog Day is really uh, just the worst thing that could happen in my life right now. Um, I love Lebowski so much. I have kind of built a community around it. It's the movie that I show people. Um, when I, when I go to new places or when I talk to new people, it's the movie that, that kind of most often comes up because it's such a fantastic kind of quirky, interesting film and you are making me vote against it. Uh, as much as I love Lebowski, I, I can't let it beat such a compelling, such an intelligent film as Groundhog Day. Uh, the metaphysics involved there, uh, Groundhog Day is just actually exploring what it is to be a human being in a way that uh, I think few pieces of art over time really have captured. And that's that's why I'm hating you this week. But I love the show. I love what you do. Uh, and I love madness. Thanks. Metaphysics applied to both Groundhog Day and Lebowski. It works for both. I think it does. And really, we always aspire to be the worst thing happening in a listener's life at any given moment. I mean, I think that's... We're succeeding <laughs> we based succeeding. on the feedback I'm seeing. Like Colin from Oregon. Wow, this one hurts. As much as I love Groundhog Day, it's Lebowski. Groundhog Day is basically a perfect movie, but it's not the movie my dad and I bonded over. It's not the movie we quote to each other endlessly. It's not the movie we attend cons for, Josh. It's not the movie for which we have action figures hanging on our walls. Groundhog Day may be perfect, 
but it doesn't tie the room together. Colin may be a little bit overcommitted to the Big Lebowski. <laughs> he might. This was so close, and we had a feeling it would be. I didn't think this close, though. Lebowski, 52% to Groundhog Day's 48. Good showing, Groundhog Day. Yeah, I'm not proud bad. of you. Okay, I'm glad you're proud. Let's move on to the next round of matchups and to the Fargo region. Our number three overall seed was that Coen Brothers film up against Curtis Hansen's L.A. Confidential. Brad in West Milwaukee says, this hurts, this just plain hurts. Two of my favorite movies, not just of the 90s, but of all time. I'm going with L.A. Confidential wow. as one of the few movies I've seen that has ever genuinely surprised me. Fargo may be the Coen's best, but at least I still have Lebowski, No Country, and O brother at least for now okay Ooh, interesting logic decent rationale he's giving up what he considers to be their best mm. because he'll have others well brad you were with the minority on this one only 20 percent of the vote going to la confidential fargo takes it with 80 you still got fargo brad richard linklater already moved on with dazed and confused can another linklater movie advance going up against stanley kubrick's Eyes wide shut. Ryan Casto in St. Louis. Come on, film spotting family and friends. Don't do this to me. Don't do this to yourself. Before sunrise is full of hope and love and earnest positivity and optimism. That's eyes wide shut too, to a T. No, I think you need to revisit. Air on the side of love, Ryan says, not decadence and loathing. We deserve this. Well, Ryan, you do deserve it. Before sunrise, 65% to eyes wide shut's 35. Link later moves on with a pair of films. Now, Josh's oh. adored Rushmore. Is this where we bid adieu to Rushmore? We'll see. Really? I love that you haven't peaked. I love that you haven't peaked at all. You're going to just no. discover this for the first time. Don't look I'm ahead really then. Excited. I'm going to take this one. Don't I, look. I want to surprise you. I in The the glimmer in your eye makes me think I, I might have a reason to hope here. If I had that glimmer, it'd be to crush your hopes and dreams. You know that. <laughs> Michael Green in Good Dover, point. Delaware says, 10 years ago, my vote would have been Shawshank. But after listening to film spotting for a few years, I discovered the wonderful world of Wes Anderson and have oh, not looked back. You're welcome, Michael. Damn this game, but I do love it. Joe in West Lafayette, Indiana says, I may be a simple man, but Shawshank gets my vote here. Joe, I sense Adam and Josh view Shawshank as a fine film, but not really deserving of its current classic status. I disagree. As Ebert says, Darabont constructs the film to observe the story, not not to punch it up or upstage it. Upstaging, in fact, is unknown in this film. The actors are content to stay within their roles, the story moves in an orderly way, and the film itself reflects the slow passage of the decades. Hmm. I I really have a soft spot for Shawshank Redemption. I think it's a very good film, and it's another one that is very hard to turn off even after it's come on TBS or TNT for the 4,000th time. It's a good movie. I really like Shawshank, and I had a really hard time voting against it i'm pretty sure okay, i good. did go with rushmore i'm I trying to remember what i said rushmore. on air thankfully you we just watched it last year for the sake of know Power Review, i so know it's fresh and it's really good it is not as good as tenenbaums but really good all right on that we disagree josh i'm gonna let you do the honor scroll down how did this come out yes 53 <laughs> percent for rushmore to shawshanks 47 percent I don't know if I've ever been prouder of Film Spotting Nation. I'm so happy for you right now. All right, there's another matchup. David Fincher's Seven versus Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs that went neck and neck all weekend. So we're going to call the final results live when we come back. Stay with us. I'm stuck in the middle with you And 
Aha. Okay. Right. Okay. Now freeze your hand. Freeze your hand. Don't move. I'm going to do the same thing. Start with the same, same place again. Right. Which way is going to roll off? Let's say back. Yep. Same way. Same, same way. Same back. Why? Because tiny variations, uh, the, the orientation of the hairs on your hands. Hey, Alan, look at this. Um, the amount of blood distending your vessels, imperfections in the skin. Imperfections in the skin? Microscopic, microscopic. <laughs> and never repeat and vastly affect the outcome. That's important. Unpredictability. Right. We're back to madness. Round two results with Jeff Goldblum there and Laura Dern in Spielberg's Jurassic Park. We'll see if chaos theory had any effect on the results of Jurassic's matchup against Scorsese's Goodfellas, the number two overall seed in our tournament. That's correct. And we hear now from Chris Massa Minute. Massa, I just rewatched Goodfellas and I knew it was good, but wow. And I also can't believe I forgot how entertaining it is. This isn't just a contest between quality and nostalgia or between greatness and entertainment. I'd argue that it's actually a contest between two phenomenally entertaining movies, one of which just happens to be a masterpiece. So long, Jurassic Park. I'd say also Joe Pesci, way scarier than Velociraptors. I'm with you. Jake Strunk in Brooklyn. Hey, T-Rex, go home and get your shine box. There you go. Good fellas all the way. <laughs> Jessica in Somerville, Mass. I'll be glad to see Jurassic Park go extinct in this round. So Goodfellas seems dominant from the feedback. It wasn't quite so dominant with the results. 66% of the vote. I'll still take it. I can't believe it. Really? A third of you out there, you 90s children. You're disappointed in these results. You I'm wanted a walloping, huh? Yeah, yeah, I did. I wanted a Billy Bat style beat down on Jurassic Park and it didn't happen. Okay. That brings us to our next matchup. Very sad to see one of these two go. The Wachowski sisters, the Matrix versus the only doc in the entire tournament, Steve James, Hoop Dreams. Here's Chris Bentley-Smith. Hailing from the UK, I've not seen any basketball to speak of, but Dreams is no less gripping because of that. Because the story it tells about these two kids transcends their sporting aspirations. Is it talking down to the genre to say I found this film as enthralling as fictional cinema? Maybe so. But I know that Hoop Dreams is a great film, period. Thank you, Chris. Sean Cook in Royal Oak, Michigan writes, I can't shake the feeling that The Matrix has to win the whole shebang. And it's mostly because of Chuck Klosterman. In film spotting episode 600, top five movies future historians will remember, Klosterman picked The Matrix. And that answer has continued to strike me as more and more correct. Hear me out. It was a huge box office success, a critical darling. The technology used in filming it was groundbreaking. The subject matter continues to be ever more prescient in how we define our own existence. And its creators are two transgender women who, by their very existence, are revolutionary and historically important. 20 years later, The Matrix is only growing in its ability to define the very nature of identity in a new millennium. It just feels like the movie that will ultimately have mattered the most to our world 30 years from now won't be Fargo or Goodfellas or Pulp Fiction, which seem almost silly compared to the truly relevant piece of postmodern art that is The Matrix. Plus, I know Kung Fu is just great writing. <laughs> Argue Sean, with that. Argue with Sean. But, Sean, will all of that matter now when listeners are voting? Yeah, yeah. It, it does. <laughs> it does. The apparently. Matrix wins with 68% of the vote. But a great case there made by Sean. Thank you so much. This next one was... A very easy one for me, I believe for you as well, much to the chagrin of people out there who assumed that we put our namesake movie in a much more hallowed place, Train Spotting, going up against the higher seed Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. Here's Joseph Arando. Of good film stock, albeit one of modest means, she was a comely film and not without prospects. Therefore, it was at once heartbreaking and astonishing to Danny Boyle that she would enter into oblivion at the hands of Clint Eastwood, a maker of notoriously vicious, introspective, and morally complex films. 
We often praise Martin Scorsese for his unflinching portrayal of complex characters in an imperfect world. In this film, a blind spot for me before this tournament, Clint Eastwood has followed this ethos fully. This is a masterpiece and easily sends Train Spotting, a fine film in its own right, into the abyss. If we got one person, and I'm guessing we got more than just Joseph, to watch Unforgiven for the first time because of Film Spotting Madness, it will all have been worth it. Agreed. And just reading that and some of the other great clever comments here our listeners are way smarter than us and they also have way more free time on their hands don't you think (laughs) if they're just putting all these films on to play a tournament to play a silly tournament yeah i think they do (laughs) chad and evanston i know where you're going with that josh sorry train spotting deserves got nothing to do with it that was more concise to the point i like it thank you chad and in fact unforgiven takes it 61 percent to 39 percent for train spotting. How about Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia versus Spike Jones being John Malkovich? Luke Palmer in Indianapolis. I can't believe I'm voting against my second PTA film this round. Curse you, film spotting madness. Jones and Kaufman are just too important to lose. Paul Bogosian in Brooklyn. An impossible choice. I'm going with Magnolia, though mainly because of all the shade you've been throwing its way the last two weeks. And we both like this movie. Yes, we do. Welcome to my world, Adam. Yeah, I know. This is where you're always at, aren't you? This is how it feels to, you know, be mildly enthusiastic about a film. I don't like it. Being mischaracterized is fun. Oh, it's not a perfect movie, but it remains one of the most ecstatic expressions of pure emotional cinema of the last 20 years. I predict Magnolia will go far in this tournament and that it's not going to stop until you wise up. Got you there, Paul. Sam Vargan in Martinez, California. Magnolia is a flawed, self-indulgent, overstuffed, overlong okay, mess this is shade. of a film. This well, is shade. Now everyone can direct all of their ire towards Sam. But... It's the most beautiful mess I've ever seen. While I think Anderson has improved, matured, and gained a level of precision in his film sense, none of his movies pack the raw emotional punch Magnolia tried. We tried to sacrifice Sam. Backtracking there, Sam. I think he should still take the brunt of the blame. He should. And a lot of people are going to be upset. We have our first legitimate upset in Film Spotting Madness, and only one of us called it, and you're looking at him, Josh. Big John Malkovich. 54% 54% of the vote. Magnolia gone with just 46. So why did you think this would happen? I just had a gut feeling that Malkovich was the more beloved film. Hmm. Yeah, people I talk about Magnolia all the time. Yeah. Hey, I think we should feel I better. I thought I was an idiot. I think we should feel better about our stance on Magnolia. And everyone else should just shut up about it now. <laughs> well, they have to. They have no to. No one else is going to see Magnolia. Yeah. It's uh, gone forever. Emails are automatically blocked if Magnolia is mentioned I can them. hear Jason Eakin in L.A. He's he's sobbing. He's <laughs> never going to go out with me for a drink again. He is going to be distraught. Hey, sometimes relationships are ruined because of film spotty madness. It happens. It's all, it's all worth it, I think. Josh, now our number one overall seed, Pulp Fiction versus Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. Aaron Teachman in D.C. says there will come a time in this tournament when I start to vote against Pulp Fiction. Right now, it's all fun and games and $5 milkshakes. Sorry, Spielberg, this booth's taken. For now. Matthew Thompson in Elk River, Minnesota. It's probably over for Ryan. Pulp is a masterpiece, but Ryan had an impact on me. The beach scene in Ryan transformed my 15-year-old self. For the first time, World War II became more than just dates and slideshows in class. The movie is flawed, but that first 30 minutes made me hold my breath and reevaluate a generation and their sacrifice. Well, Matthew, I hope you remember it well because it's gone. Pulp Fiction moves on. It got 82% of the vote. Pixar's Toy Story up against Spielberg. More Spielberg potentially to 
be done away with Josh. He is having a rough tournament so far. Schindler's List up against that Pixar classic. Eric Roque in Miami, Florida, says it pains me to see Schindler's List described as ordinary or just another history lesson. I suspect that many saw this movie once and never revisited it. It's understandable. This is a tough watch. I do think it's easy to forget how powerful this film was if you last saw it in the 90s. That's certainly true of me. The liquidation of the Warsaw Ghetto finds his Amon Goth casually sniping Jews from his balcony as if he is merely skeet shooting. The Jewish man given a momentary reprieve because of pistol jams. These are scenes that stick with you. That's without even mentioning that it has plenty of technical merits as well, such as Kaminsky's gorgeous cinematography. I know I shouldn't take it too seriously. Art is subjective after all. Still, I see where the wind is blowing here, and it seems wrong. Here's Aaron again from D.C. Toy Story is just too groundbreaking to pass over and too insightful into the emotional fabric of our lives, including the many ways in which adults carry their childhoods forward, which is, you know, Spielbergian. (laughs) Stephen, as I said, having a rough tournament, he's bounced 60% going to Toy Story. Man, who would have guessed that at this point? Mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg doesn't make it any further in the tournament. And I think if we were doing best of the 70s or best of the 80s, that wouldn't be the case. Probably true. Even though these are some truly wonderful films. David Fincher, his fight club going up against a Coen Brothers film, Barton Fink. Here's James Cobden in Sydney, Australia. This was painful. It felt like my pseudo-intellectual 15-year-old self and my pseudo-intellectual 21-year-old self were beating the crap out of each other in the parking lot of a dingy bar. <laughs> Love it. Jake Strunk again in Brooklyn. Nothing against Fight Club, but it just doesn't have that Barton Fink feeling. It certainly does They're pulling not. out all the great quotes from all these films. And Barton Fink, despite our love for it, Josh, only 43%. Fight Club knocks it out with 57%. So the Coens lose one. All right. They do. Wow. Tarantino's Jackie Brown versus Wong Kar Wai's Chunking Express. Probably going to go the way I want it to go, but let's see here. Dan from D.C. Chunking is one of the most unique movies of the decade. A truly surreal, beautiful experience. It also ranks among the best cinematic expressions of loneliness and longing. The only thing I want more than to see Chunking move on in madness is for Fei Wong to break into and clean my apartment. <laughs> I will second that. Another technical upset, though, here. Chunking Express seated higher because of all of its acclaim, and I think deservedly so, but nobody is surprised by Jackie Brown winning with 60% of the vote. You feel okay about that, Josh? Yeah, I'm glad about that. Okay, you do love that film. That brings us to the final one, the final matchup we are calling live. I don't know the answer to this. You don't know the answer to it. Very exciting. Yeah. It's it's really thrilling. Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs going up against another David Fincher movie, Seven. Here's Mike. I saw Seven in the theater at a special sneak preview, and the opening title sequence still haunts me 23 years later. The whole movie was like some weird fever dream. I love Tarantino, but give me Fincher, my favorite working director, and give me the -the over-the-top insanity of Seven. Chris, mass a minute. This one couldn't be easier. One of Fincher's very best going up against one of Tarantino's absolute worst. Please. Whoa, Chris, there's, there's no need to be so snarky. <laughs> one more note from Kevin here. One cuts off an ear, one cuts off a head. Cutting off a head just makes more of an impact. Well, let's see. Okay. Let's see if it truly wow, did. Yeah. Can we apply that logic to any other matchups going forward? I don't think so. I'd like to try. We are going to click on this. We're going to hit okay. refresh. We're going All to see right. how it comes out. Seven very early on in the weekend had a lead. Sam and I couldn't believe it, but it did. But eventually, on that first day, Reservoir Dogs overtook it. And it was in front pretty much all weekend until late in the day Sunday. Somehow, it started evening out again. We're talking about, Josh, sometimes just two votes separating them. Interesting. And then somehow today, the last day, 
Seven started to inch ahead a little bit, but not by much. Again, five votes, seven votes, maybe 10 at the most. So I haven't looked at it here. I haven't looked at it in at least six hours. We see where it stands as I click on the results and hit refresh. Wow. Seven stay ahead. Your winner by upset seven. Unreal. Taking down Reservoir Dogs. This is how it came out, Josh. 50.31% 50.31% of the vote to Reservoir Dogs, 49.69% of the vote. It actually, Tight. in the end, won by 16 votes. You're kidding me. 16 votes out of uh, yeah, how many? several thousand, oh, 2,500 votes. <sighs> 16 does that put us in them. runoff territory or so, some sort of technicality? It probably does, but... But then we're really talking chaos. Do you want to go down no, that path? No, no, no. Sam I'm and sorry. I will start drafting the rules. I, I, I retract that. Erase, delete. Seven is the winner. Seven takes it. All we're right. going to have to hear more explanation on this. I know we've gotten some feedback, but I did not think seven was that beloved. Long, all weekend long, Sam and I have been shaking our heads. I do love seven. This was actually a hard one for me, even though Reservoir Dogs was one of those first transcendent cinematic experiences, and I went with it for that reason, and I do love it. We revisited it recently as a sacred cow, and it holds up, but seven is also a really, really good film, and I'm surprised and yet not shocked by its winning. That brings us to your sweet 16 matchups. The number four seed, Silence of the Lambs. Versus Dazed and Confused. Now, if we went by Josh rules, I couldn't vote for Dazed and Confused here because I yeah, went against it against Heat. Right. And as much as I love Silence of the Lambs, I'm going Dazed. Now you're going Dazed I'm and going Confused? I'm going Dazed. Yeah. I, I find no logic or reason to this at all. I'm sticking with Dazed. I'm going to ride Dazed as long as I can. Okay. Paul Thomas Anderson's Boogie Nights. This is a good matchup. Boogie Nights versus The Big Lebowski, both L.A. movies. Yeah, this is a both great double the feature. Porn industry. <laughs> a really good double feature. And a really tough one to choose for me. A really tough one to choose. I think I'm going against the grain here. I think Lebowski's going to win. I think I value Boogie Nights more. Yeah, it's been so long since I've seen Boogie Nights. And after all my bad talk about Big Lebowski having great memorable scenes, but some lulls, can I vote for it? Can I break my own rule? Yeah, I can. You can't redeem yourself. I can do whatever I want. I'm voting (laughs) Big Lebowski. Another Coen Brothers film is alive. The number three overall seed, Fargo, against Before Sunrise. Oh, man. This is... This is torture. Fargo um, Fargo against Before Sunrise. Two of my favorite movies. So I what else is gonna be in this is from agony. the Cohen brothers? Well Lebowski, Big Lebowski is, is alive likely. right now. Okay. Barton Fink is out, Miller's Crossing is out. So it's, these are the only two. This is it. You did vote for Lebowski though, so Yeah. You could say goodbye to but Fargo. But I like Fargo so much better than Lebowski. Right? Um oh man. <laughs> This Before is the worst. Sunrise, I don't even know how to think about these two. Um, if, if you could, which I'm one just, does I'm someone get this. their head cut off, and which one do they get their ear cut no, off? Can't use that here. Oh, what about? And I'm just riffing off the top of my head here. Okay. What about you can only show one of them to your kids when they get older, whatever the appropriate age is. You can pass down only one of these films. Which one do you pass down? Ooh, I mean that that puts it in. Before sunrise Me territory. Too. Me too. But I don't know that that's fair. Why do you Why do you care so much about your kids? You're not going to be able to watch <laughs> the loser anymore. I mean, that should be the more pertinent issue. 
Yeah. Sunrise I'm, is my I'm vote. I'm going before sunrise. Yeah. I am. It's agony, but we're going the same way. Now, seven, advancing. This must be an easy one for you, Josh, against Rushmore. Yeah. Oh, and it, not even a moment's pause to think about this one. I, I like seven. I agree. Yeah, I have going no seven. pause either. I'm going there's seven. A, oh, my goodness. If you watch these two films back to back, there's no way a sane person Pick seven. What? No way. When was the last time you saw seven? No way. It's David Fincher. Um, Pretty good I filmmaker last time it. I checked. I'm, I'm not. It's Very. a good It's a good film. I'm not besmirching the film or Fincher, but to watch alongside Rushmore. I mean, Very I probably watched film. seven five years ago. Really? Something like that. Yeah. And I liked it better. I thought it was a stronger film than what I remembered, but this is Rushmore. I let's, know. Let's talk reason. I know. It's your... It's your school, and you can't vote against it. Okay, our number two seed overall, Goodfellas, going up against being John Malkovich. This is a pretty easy one for me, as much as I love Malkovich. Goodfellas still firmly ahead of it. Yeah, and having voted against Malkovich earlier, which was difficult then, I've kind of, you know, broken that seal. So, Goodfellas. Another easy one for me, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven against the Wachowski sisters of The Matrix. You're going against The Matrix? I am. You're that high. And I love The Matrix, but I love Unforgiven okay. that much. Yeah, Unforgiven, Unforgiven for me might be, and I have not done this, but it might be my number four or five film in the entire tournament. Okay. That's how much I like it. Yeah, I'm with you. Unforgiven should move ahead. I don't know that it will. David Fincher, he's back with another Fight Club against Tarantino's Jackie Brown. I do like Fight Club better than Seven. I like Jackie Brown better than Fight Club. Jackie Brown it is. I do too. I do too, but I really need to see Fight Club again. I've only seen it once in the theater when it came out. And I did read the book before that. And guess what? It ruined my movie going experience just a little bit. Because, of course, I saw that twist coming a mile away having read the book. Okay. Our final matchup, the number one seed. Tarantino's got another in here. Pulp Fiction. Up against Pixar. Toy Story. Do Buzz and Woody stand a chance? Well, I don't know if they stand a chance, but I'm definitely leaning that way, despite the fact that... Pulp Fiction is really great. I mean, I do like Jackie Brown better, but that's not because I have issues with Mm -hmm. Pulp Fiction. I'm going to make the argument, though, that Toy Story is as equally revolutionary and influential as Pulp Fiction was on cinema, just in very different ways. So that helps me to give a little reasoning behind my personal preference. Toy Story for me. You're voting for Toy Story. I'm voting for Toy Story. Okay. I am not. We can't wait. To see how the results play out. And we do have to update you on our bracket contest. Me, Josh, Sam, Film Spotting Madness, founding father Mike Merrigan. We filled out our brackets at the beginning of this whole thing. We tried to predict how we thought it would play out. Not our personal choices, but how we thought it would play out. And we were so sure that Reservoir Dogs was going to win. All of our initial math was predicated on that. So I've got to do a little bit of on-the-fly adjusting here. Uh, but I this see. is where we stand currently. I'm in the lead, just barely. 58 points through two rounds. My second round misses. Not only did I pick Heat ahead of Dazed personally, I somehow thought our listeners would too. Okay. It did not win, obviously. And then I thought that the Shawshank Redemption was going to be a Cinderella a sleeper of the tournament that was going to advance, but obviously it did not take down Rushmore. I made up for that by being the only one of the four of us to call being John Malkovich over Magnolia. So a couple misses there, but I'm in the lead with 58 points. One of my elite eight are gone. That was the Shawshank Redemption. Hmm. Sam, 
close by in second place, 57 points. His misses, he thought train spotting would beat Unforgiven. He thought Magnolia would beat Malkovich. He only has one of his Elite Eight gone, but here's the thing. Reservoir Dogs, he headed in the final four. Aha. That hurts him. Hurts him bad. Mike Merrigan, third place, 55 points. He also had train spotting over Unforgiven and Magnolia over Malkovich, and he did not pick Reservoir Dogs to make it to the final four. So he's in a slightly better place than Sam. Josh, you are tied with Mike with 55 points. Hey, you hey. only missed Magnolia and Reservoir Dogs, but you do have two of your Elite Eight gone because you thought Magnolia was going to make it to that final eight. Eesh. Yeah, that seems sensible. That seems reasonable. It seemed it at the time, I'm sure, but it did not go in your favor. So can we say I'm, I'm tied for lead. third? Yeah, absolutely. Can, can we phrase it that way? Yeah, you okay. are tied for third. You're in the exact same spot. You both have 55 points and two of your elite eight are gone. So you're still in this. You're still very much alive. I see that. Voting for Film Spotting Madness is open at filmspotting.net slash madness. Vote now. Invite your friends. Polls go live every Friday at midnight central, and they close the following Monday at 5 p.m. Mike, I see an Adam Sandler Netflix film in your future. <laughs> you poor, poor thing. That is our show. If you have any thoughts on it, we'd love to hear your comments anytime. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, or send us an MP3 or leave us a short voicemail, and we may use it in an upcoming show. 312 Two six four zero seven four four at filmspotting.net you can find 12 years of reviews interviews and top fives all in the show archives and if you haven't already please do check out the film spotting family of podcasts the next picture show and film spotting svu you can find both an apple podcast or your preferred podcast app out in limited release this weekend opening in chicago a movie i really want to catch up with the death of stalin follows the soviet dictator's last days and depicts the chaos of the regime after his death from writer director armando Iannucci, who gave us in the loop out in wide release i can only imagine this is the true story behind a country song love simon a teen coming out story and alicia vikander starring in tomb raider if you have to go to one of those films which one do you choose josh oh tomb raider because of vikander i mean yeah i guess that right? does give it an edge she's a great actress fair enough next week film spotting madness those sweet 16 results and the elite eight matches and we will discuss the latest from steven soderbergh unsane Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. We'd also like to thank the Communication Arts Department at Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, which provided the recording space for this episode. Learn more at TRNTY. Edu. Go Trolls. Like what you hear? Give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.